The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, December 22nd, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sometimes I joke at the top of the show, and today the entire spiel is going to be about one joke that is coming up, I can assure you. But today I thought I'd use this space to say something about the horrible events in New York City over the weekend. Two NYPD officers were gunned down. Assassinated was the word they used by an anti-police maniac. Executed, assassinated, those are indeed apt verbs. What was beyond the pale were the words of the head of the police patrolman's union. There's blood on many hands tonight. Those that incited violence on the street under the guise of protest that tried to tear down what New York City police officers did every day. We tried to warn it must not go on, it cannot be tolerated. That blood on the hands starts on the steps of City Hall. Patrick Lynch there implicating Mayor Bill de Blasio, who has been anti-cop in the words of Lynch, Rudy Giuliani, former police commissioner Raymond Kelly. Lynch, by the way, had been urging officers before this event to sign a statement saying that they don't want de Blasio attending their funerals should they be killed in the line of duty. That statement was a hypothetical. Now, de Blasio is not anti-cop. The worst quote his opponents could come up with to demonstrate how his actions led a man to kill were that the mayor said that he told his biracial son, Dante, to be cautious in his interactions with police. Oh, calumny. Oh, provocation. Today, the mayor and the police commissioner gave their first public comments on the shootings. Commissioner Bratton said he spoke to the unions. They will be toning down their rhetoric. Mayor de Blasio said, quote, Let's focus just on these families and what they've lost. I think that's the right way to try and build a more unified and decent city. The one thing I will add is this. Of course, de Blasio's comments and Kelly's comments and protesters protesting did not put a gun in the hand of the madman who killed cops. And to cull through the records to find a group of protesters who may have chanted about killing cops, and that is tape I've seen, or to try to conflate nasty messages in chat groups with the decision to actually murder someone, that's ridiculous. It's obviously ridiculous. But that's also the case when the issues cut the other way. In May on this program, I talked about the murder of college students in Santa Barbara, California by a lunatic who visited a lot of anti-woman message groups. And then I said that an examination of his motives weren't as important as just knowing that he was afflicted by madness. When what fuels a murder is a sentiment we loathe, we attack the subculture, espousing that sentiment, say pickup artists, or quote-unquote anti-police forces. Now, is the difference between those two examples that anti-police sentiment is a canard, whereas widespread misogyny is the truth? I say it's a losing game trying to pinpoint the conditions that created a murderer. To say that some are illegitimate grievances, whereas others are legitimate but taken too far, I say that when someone becomes a homicidal, or in both these cases suicidal, exponent of a philosophy, let's not use that as a pretext to debate the philosophy. The actions were so extreme, they stand alone and should be quarantined. The only agenda item that should be advanced by a murderer is the issue of guns and madness and the intersection thereof. Okay, big sigh, 
big tonal shift. As I mentioned in the spiel, I will be dissecting a joke. E.B. White once said that explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. You understand it better, but the frog dies in the process. Oh, frogs? How about bears? Colbert is off the air. That dude talked a lot about bears. The gist shall now carry the torch. But first, oil, it explains so much, yet is understood so little. Oil is the most valuable commodity in the world. Not per ounce. It's actually cheaper than milk when you think about it, let alone the truly precious metals. But it is the fuel of world economies. Wars are constantly being fought over it. It has liberated billions of people, but it also keeps billions more in shackles. We're witnessing right now a tremendous plunge in oil prices, which promises to remake world affairs. Joining me now is Keith Johnson. He covers the geopolitics of energy at Foreign Policy, a dozen-year veteran of the Wall Street Journal. Hello, Keith. How are you? I'm well. So I could cite things like five-year low of oil prices or huge one-day plunges. How, though, how monumental is what we're seeing now? Are we witnessing a fundamental reshaping of the status quo? You know, this it's, it's interesting because a lot of people sort of jump to that conclusion in the uh, uh, on, on Thanksgiving, when OPEC decided to sort of stand pat and not make any efforts to rein in the, the bloodshed, uh, and oil prices kept dropping. And a lot of people thought, wow, we're really entering a new era. Personally, I think it's probably too soon to say. And I know that's a Weasley answer, but th- there's a reason for that. You know, we had a huge drop uh, in 2009 as well uh, during the global financial crisis. Uh, you know, the demand for oil around the world everywhere fell off a cliff. Uh, oil prices fell even more precipitously than they have now. Uh, so when people are talking about these five-year lows, you know, that's precisely what we're saying. This is the worst thing since the last worst thing we had just a few years ago. And then the second big point is, you know, the revolution that's going on in oil, and we'll talk about this later, you know, is U.S. production. It has been a huge, unexpected wild card, but U.S. production is a lot more fickle than traditional oil production. So I think it's probably premature to say we've got a fundamental long-term change in the nature of the oil market. So President Obama said, now is the moment for this generation to embark on a national mission to unleash America's innovation and seize control of our own destiny. His predecessor, George W. Bush, said the country can dramatically improve our environment, move beyond the petroleum-based economy, and make our dependence on Middle Eastern oil a thing of the past. I'm not going to read every president, but it goes back to Nixon. They say the same thing. We will break the back of the energy crisis. We will lay the foundation for our energy capacity to meet America's energy needs from America's own sources, January 74. So, wow, way over 40 years we've been talking about American energy independence. How close are we? Well, it's a non-starter. Uh, and I'll tell you just simply because the very notion of energy independence is, is a fallacy because it's a globally traded commodity. So even if you were able to produce, say, the 18 million barrels a day that the country consumes, even if you made all of that in Texas and North Dakota, uh, it's still a globally priced commodity, which means you'd still be paying the same price. Right. I would argue that that's actually a good thing and a bad thing. But what about net exporter versus net importer? We're still a long ways away. You know, it's, and, and I'm glad you brought up the Nixon point, because at the time of the OPEC embargo in 1973-74, when Nixon was hitting the panic button, uh, we got about one-third of our oil was imported. And now, after all of this phenomenal progress that's been made in recent years and, and the huge uptick in U.S. production, about one-third of our oil is imported. <laughs> so in other words, we're exactly in the same situation we were, literally, statistically, today, 
as during the dark, scary, hand-wringing days of the OPEC embargo. I'd like to, for a second, talk to opponents of fracking. Um, Let's not even debate the environmental impact, but because there is this shale oil and because it's created such a low price for oil, this has meant many good things for Americans, not all Americans, but it does seem to be trending more towards the positive for Americans. Are there ways that we're not even realizing that Americans are benefiting from this new source of oil? It's entirely possible that that you don't realize things that, that you don't see directly in front of you. And I'll give you an example in terms of, you know, heating bills. I know I've got, you know, my electricity and my heat runs on natural gas. So for the last few years, since gas prices spiked in 2008, you know, you can turn on the thermostat and not worry that you're going to bankrupt your family. Okay. So for folks who, who have access to natural gas utilities, this is a huge bonus, especially in times where, you know, family budgets are tight. That's not necessarily true in the Northeast, where you've still got heating oil and, you know, prices there have have been traditionally high. Another point, you know, gasoline prices, right? Now, gasoline prices have come down as the global price of oil has come down. Of course, part of the reason the global price of oil has come down is all this extra U.S. oil. But average national gas prices are $2.50 today. They were three twenty-two twelve 12 months ago. That's about an eight or $900 per family stimulus right there in terms of gas budgets. So, yeah, things like that end up, add up at the end of the day. Did any Obama policies either cause this to happen or help it happen? Or maybe you could argue, actually, the drop in oil pretty much happened despite what uh, the administration has been trying to do. You know, there's two components to it. Obviously, there's additional supply that came on, and, and most of that's from the U.S. There's also economic weakness in Europe, Japan, and China. And so, you know, more supply and less demand made for a, a frothy market. In terms of U.S. policies, you know, it's hard to point to anything in particular. In fact, you know, the Republican opponents would say that we could have actually been drilling more because there are still limitations on on drilling on federal land in the U.S. Most of the shale, most of this oil development is on private lands. But the geology is also mostly on private lands. So that's, it's kind of a muddled argument. But other than that, you know, the, the shale revolution itself was facilitated by Department of Energy research but dating back to the 70s. So it's a combination of government research from the 70s with some favorable tax regimes starting in 1981, and then a huge, nimble, wildcatting spirit from the independent oil companies that did the rest. So it, it, was a, it was a combination of factors, but it goes back three decades. And it's interesting in that it uh, incorporates conservative ideology, like wildcatters who, wanna, uh, who are motivated by capitalism, but also the democratic idea of rebutting the notion that government doesn't do anything. Right. I mean, it, and it's an important point because, you know, uh, George Mitchell, for instance, who's the, you know, the, the father of fracking, um, you know, and he was a wildcatter, but he was always the first to acknowledge, you know, this was at the time sort of a risky, unknown technology. And one of the things that got it over the hump was the support from federal labs. And he, he was always one of the first to point that out. Yeah. Keith Johnson covers the geopolitics of energy at Foreign Policy. Thank you so much. No, thank you. When people ask me, the gist, what's that about? I usually say, you know, news, politics, the arts. But what I really want to say, but haven't been able to up until now, is the following. You know, news, politics, the arts, bears. But now we're joined by a bear expert to inaugurate Bear Talk. Andrew, you got a jingle for this? Bear the bear. Bear news. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Oh, 
It's negative. You're scared of bears. Well, joining me now is Ray Wynn Grant, who's a faculty fellow at Columbia University's Department of, big title, Ecology, Evolution, and Environmental Biology. She studies black bears in the Lake Tahoe Basin, among other places. Hello, Ray. Hi. Tell me what a typical day is like for you in the field, not when you're at Columbia on the Upper West Side, but actually studying bears in the field. Studying bears in the field, yes, very different from my, you know, lounging in a nice office. (laughs) Studying bears in the field, it depends on if I'm by myself or, you know, with a research assistant or collaborator. But often it means waking up when the sun rises at six-ish in a tent, you know, on the side of a mountain in the Sierras. It's freezing cold and I take a look around and I think, oh, I'm so lucky. I'm so happy to be here with the sunrise and all these animals alone in the wilderness. Mostly what I'm doing when I'm doing field work is trapping bears. And that takes a lot of work. How do you trap a bear? Basically, we're just um, digging a hole, baiting the hole with something delicious that the bear would want, usually like a smoked fish or sometimes like a peanut butter marshmallow mix. Once the bear reaches down into the hole, there's a little spring that will then, you know, trap it by its paw. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, these traps are sometimes effective, but they are um, non-harmful to the bear. So sometimes they can actually just slip their paw out, depending on the size of the bear. Well, do the bears freak out? Have you seen it actually, a bear actually been trapped, or do you just come upon it post-trap? I've seen it. I've seen it. Usually I come upon it post-trap. That is the idea. But I've seen it, and they're not, you know, they don't freak out too much. They're definitely surprised and a little bit annoyed. But there's enough of this chain that they can walk around a little bit and move around. The biggest thing is that when I'm out in the field is that I check these traps every day. Mm -hmm. You would never want to leave a bear trapped for more than a full day. It needs food, it needs water, it needs freedom. So I am going around hiking everywhere. I have a little ATV that helps me buzz up these steep hills. And I am just going for it, checking every single trap I set. And usually they're empty. And usually I walk away defeated. When you find the bear in the trap, then do you tranquilize it? Yeah, we have these great guns that actually are kind of like, you know, sniper rifles where you get the little laser dot on the animal and it just, Uh you know, shoots this dart right into it. Do you ever say like a Schwarzenegger line beforehand just for fun? (laughs) Consider that a divorce. (laughs) You are unbearable. (laughs) Grin and bat it. (laughs) I'm very serious. Okay, Okay, during these funders who are listening, take note. Yeah, (laughs) it takes you know maybe three or four minutes for the bear to go down, and then it's knocked out. It's asleep. We, I mean, if I'm with my team, we will go in, and the idea is to just kind of take the basics. You know, we're going to estimate the weight of the bear, measure it a little bit, take hair sample, blood sample, and then the most important thing is to tag the bear. Mm -hmm. So we have these earrings, tags that we put on with a number on it. You know, we record all the information. We also will tattoo its number like on its gums, mm. kind of un- flip open its lip yeah. and make a tattoo on its gum so that, yeah. you know, in case the earring falls off, we still yeah. know which bear this is. And then what's particular to my research is I will attach a GPS collar around its neck. So it kind of looks like a dog collar, but, right. you know, it's a little bit heavier because it has a GPS satellite signal. Yeah. So I can track where it goes. I was reading about, in general, what people can do to uh, keep the bears out of their backyards. The garbage is big. But then the Wall Street Journal says bear activists say bears and humans can coexist if people would just lock up their garbage, their homes, and their cars. Bear jackings? What's going on with the cars? Absolutely. You would not believe it. I mean, especially in the western U.S., bears are breaking into cars. Why? Because... People leave food in their cars. If you have your candy bar and you forget about it or even, you know, a stick of gum. I've heard about stories where people just have like a spare thing of deodorant in their 
bag in their mm-hmm. car. A bear smells it. Their sense of smell is unbelievable. I mean, better than most carnivores their size. And they smell it and they want at it. Absolutely. But locking the car helps? Like, they'll try the door they handle? Can, they'll try the door handle. They'll break the windows. Well, I mean, they'll really, yeah, yeah. they'll really get in. Sometimes it's, you know, a little bit amusing because sometimes they have a hard time getting out. <laughs> and so people often will find the bear still in their car, you know, trying to get out, trying to figure out how this door works in the opposite way. But absolutely. I mean, as well, to add to your list, you know, when you do some grilling with your friends on your deck, make sure you clean off your grill afterwards because bears will smell the remnants of this meat and it smells like a good time and they'll come and maybe cause a little problem in your backyard. What's the most your safety has ever been imperiled doing your bear research? More often than not, I hear a bear very, very, very close to me and don't know where it is because we're talking about thick forest, you know, thick brush. Often they're, you know, kind of following these riverine trails or stream beds, you know, where there's a lot of reeds and just a lot of bush there. And it's really hard to see them. And so what should you do? I mean, spray it, run away, spray it in the face, act big. Is that a thing? Is that real? All of those things. All of those things are real. I carry bear spray with me. You know, I recommend anyone who lives in any kind of bear country or visiting bear country, carry bear spray. It's essentially like mace, like Mm -hmm. a pepper spray. You know, they don't like it. Um, We don't like it either, so don't get it on you. (laughs) Um, But act big. So if you have a jacket on, take your jacket off and hold your hands up high and act like you're big. Do not make eye contact with the animal. So that's the thing. With carnivores, when you make eye contact, you look like you're prey. You know, Mm -hmm. the deer in the headlights kind of thing. They think, oh, that's a prey. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to go after it. Don't make eye contact. Slowly back away, but get big. Use your deep voice, your deep getaway bear voice. Yeah. So now let's, uh, we open this up to Twitter, and Vertigo Shtick asks, how the hell do they sleep so long? I mean, I could put away 36 hours straight, but <laughs> goddamn, that was Vertigo. <laughs> so yeah, hibernation, how's it work? Hibernation's amazing. So these bears go to sleep in October, November, wake up in March, April, depending on the snowfall. And throughout this whole time, they don't eat a thing, they don't drink a thing, they don't you know, produce waste. They don't. That was actually. That was actually the at the very margins question. Do they poop during hibernation? They okay, absolutely do not. They're able to recycle all of their waste within their own bodies. Their heartbeat slows down to eight beats a minute. Wow. And what's more impressive is that the female black bears have babies during hibernation. They don't feel a thing. They just give birth to these little one-pound babies, and they wake up in the spring, and they're there. All right. Are dogs more? This is uh, Mark Turnbull asks: Are bears more closely related to dogs or cats? I don't think either. It's it's more closely related to dogs. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. But, you know, they're well, distant, distant, you know, genetic relatives. Yeah. And the, the finally, here's a good one. Uh, Jeremy HPM asks, my radio career started debating how many humans without weapons it would take to take down a bear. Need a conclusive answer. Without weapons. Oh, my gosh. So we're talking about, like, strangling with I your guess, bear yeah, hands. I no, guess, no, yeah. No snares or anything. You know, I study, you know, human-induced mortality to black bears. So this is kind of a disturbing question for me. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm really going to give an answer there. Let's save the bears, okay? Don't take them down. Ray Wynn Grant studies bears. I hope you come back so we could do some more bear talk. Let's do a follow-up. I love it. Ray Wynn Grant, faculty fellow at Columbia's University Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Environmental Biology. She knows the black bear. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Joke's on us. I came across this Johnny Carson monologue joke, a.k.a. 
How can you tell you're listening to a monologue set in 1988? And this morning, I really got in the Christmas spirit. I saw a small group of Malibu children faxing Santa their Christmas list <laughs> from, from their car phones. It was very touching. hi But for me, the big problem with jokes, or quote-unquote jokes, that late-night comics tell is this. I know too much. Knowing too much gets in the way of enjoying a joke. Many premises are ruined, and these jokes need to be appended with a kind of asterisk. Last week, Jimmy Fallon joked, during his weekly address, Pope Francis assured the crowds that all animals go to heaven. Then Katz said, have you met us? But I couldn't get to the hilarious anti-cat punchline because I knew the Pope didn't say it during his weekly address. He supposedly said it to a boy directly. And guess what? Even that was disproved. So it ruined the joke. Or when the day after Election Day, Seth Meyers said this. New York City welcomes back Congressman Charlie Rangel. Rangel has been formally censured by his colleagues for a slew of ethics violations. You know how hard it is to get censured in Congress for ethics violations? That's like getting kicked out of Burning Man for not showering enough. <laughs> Rangel's the first congressman to be censured since 1983. You would think anyone could beat him. How did he win? No one ran against him. So congratulations, Rangel, and welcome back. Okay, but I know he ran unopposed in the general, but he just squeaked out a highly contested primary. So that got in the way of the joke. Then, on Saturday, on Saturday Night Live, was the worst example of this phenomenon to me. The popular NPR podcast Serial finished its 12-episode run. For much more on this story, talk to white people. (laughs) Okay, I will now risk making a long spiel about a short joke, but it did get me thinking about larger issues. First of all, Serial is not an NPR show. I understand honest mistake, way of orienting the audience, but guess what? That's not why the NPR reference was there. The NPR reference was there to tell viewers who hadn't heard of Serial, we're now going to give you a shorthand. All right, here's an easier way to mentally categorize this thing and get an easy laugh out of it. So there's this blog, Stuff White People Like, and the blog works because it has a comic voice that is sometimes spot on and you could read it and take it at face value. Yeah, white people do like TED Talks. That is kind of self-congratulatory. Yeah, it's not like your good intentions really are going to save the world. But the blog also talks about things like the World Cup. And there the comedy is that the quote-unquote author of the blog is obviously wrong. The World Cup is the world's game. But it is kind of infuriating that white people have this better-than-you hipstery thing going on when it comes to soccer. Now, The serial joke is just lame because serial isn't insular, it's not off-putting, and there is no we're better than you. So it's not typical of the stuff white people like. At its base is the fact that a reporter did a year-long deep dive into a real murder and presented evidence that shows a man in jail, a brown man in jail, by the way, probably got an unfair trial. That joke is kind of galling when you think about how dismissive it is. This weekend update joke. Yes, we are now at, what, a 400 to 1 ratio about my analysis of the joke and the joke? I'll grant you that. But if you saw this joke in your Twitter feed, you wouldn't say, now there is an example of real humor. It was definitely far from the worst joke that SNL has done. Weekend Update is particularly off this year. There are two new hosts. They're not hitting their stride. The anchor who delivered that joke, Michael Che, he's a really good stand-up. But in his stand-up, he's surprising. And his sentences don't go where you think they will. Now he's just kind of pandering. NPR equals white people. I'll give you. This is something I'm a little closer to than most late-night talk show content. It's about a podcast about NPR, but I kind of know how Joe Biden feels. 
I want to make one thing clear, though. It's what my complaint isn't. I'm not making the, you know, if you turned it around, it would be racist. I'm not saying that. I understand that the less powerful can make fun of the more powerful, and that's at least fair game. That is the compact that society has made. One race gets to own land and gets to vote for about a century, and the trade-off is somewhere down the line they have to take a joke. But it's not a good joke. Do better. Do better, SNL. And SNL did. They had a fully fleshed out serial parody that was great because if you did know serial, it earned laughs of recognition. And if you didn't know, it wasn't, oh, it's NPR, even though it's not NPR and let's make a stupid NPR joke. No, they did this faux investigation into Santa Claus. It worked on that level. I guess the thing that galled me most about the joke was that I think comedy needs to be, if nothing else, anti-ignorant, not reveling in, hey, here's this thing you've been hearing about. Let me sum it up for you. White people like it. Lamest ethnicity ever. Am I right? All right. So I guess it now comes down to this. I got to put my money where my mouth is. I got to write a better joke than SNL did. Here are a few attempts. Serial, the popular podcast, ended its 12-episode run. In doing so, got an amazing amount of coverage and publicity for sponsor MailChimp, the web company about which no one can tell you quite what they do. Serial, the popular podcast, ended its 12-episode run, capturing the attention of millions of Americans sucked into the story of one murder and a possible false conviction. This in contrast to Syria, now entering its 44th month, the story of 200,000 people who are definitely dead, much to the indifference of millions of Americans. (laughs) Serial, the popular podcast, ended its 12-episode run, The podcast was enjoyed by teenagers, journalism students, and definitely not Jay. (laughs) That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi requires an adequate amount of cover due to her shy and solitary nature, so she lives mainly in heavily forested areas. Just intern Claire Tennisketter is able to adapt well to diverse habitats such as mountains, swampy areas, abandoned fields, hardwood forests, softwood forests, mixed forests, mountain laurel thickets, logged areas, and cornfields. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, marks his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, contrary to some myths, can easily run up and downhill. Get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We are on Yo. Download that app and sign up for podcast. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash slate gist. Email us at the gist at slate.com. I may forage for up to 20 hours a day during autumn, increasing my body weight by 35% in preparation for winter. I do it for you. Thanks for listening.